Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Forests can offer us picturesque views, but did you know they can also look at the past? Why is that important? To better understand our climate, we need to study the past and inspecting tree rings is a great way to do it. We're ringing in the new year by talking to Valerie Truay from the University of Arizona. She uses tree rings to study past climate, forest ecosystems, atmospheric circulation patterns, and more. We'll discuss what tree rings can actually tell us about our planet's history and how we can use that to protect future generations. Valerie, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, uh, Marshall. Yeah, it's really, really an honor to talk to uh, someone that's looking at a, a, an area that, you know, our Weather Geeks listeners may not have as much familiarity with. I think these are the sometimes the best episodes because you can really learn together about tree rings and paleoclimatology and all kinds of big fancy words like dendrosciences. So before we do that, though, I always like to sort of, I want to give a little of your background. And then while I'm doing that, you can be thinking about this question. How'd you get into what you do? What what, what migrated you into that field? But before we do that, let me paint a picture of, of Valerie's background. Uh, she's a professor of dendrochronology at the University of Arizona, the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research. She has a PhD in bioscience engineering. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of her university, but it's in Belgium. Uh, uh, she's the author of Tree Story, history of the world written in rings. Uh, she's a research scientist and has an affiliation with the Swiss Federal Institute for Forest, Snow, and Landscape Research in their Dendro Sciences Unit. And she's the University of Arizona Distinguished Scholar and a Copley Fellow of the National Academy of Sciences. All of that means she knows her stuff and she's a big deal. So we'd love to have you. So so how did you sort of migrate into this? When I, usually when we have meteorology guests, they often say it was a storm or a weather experience. What's your experience that got you into your field? It's a good question. It really was serendipity most more than anything else. So as, as you mentioned, I got my degrees in, in uh, bioscience engineering in, in Belgium. There's not really... Um, a meteorology path that one can take in Belgium in the university. So I've always been interested in the climate, but I had to kind of go uh, take a detour to get there. Um, and I, when, when I was looking for a topic for my master's thesis, um, I had never heard of dendrochronology before. Uh, just like many other people, I didn't. I had no idea that one could study the climate using cheerings. But I really badly wanted to go abroad for my master's thesis. I really wanted to go do field work. And there was this one topic that was listed um, to do cheering analysis in Tanzania. And I figured, you know, I'd love to go to Tanzania. If tree rings are the way to get me there, I'll go do that. Um, so I did that. <clears throat> me and a fellow student, we went to Tanzania to collect samples. And when we got back and when I started looking at the wood in the lab through a microscope, that's when I really got hooked on dendrochronology. It's, wood is beautiful when you look at it under a microscope. And really what we do as dendrochronologists 
we we match pad patterns in the rings that we see uh, between trees. And so it's kind of like solving a puzzle. So what you're doing day to day is looking at beautiful wood through a microscope while, you know, solving a puzzle while working on a big, important topic. So it's hard to not uh, love doing that. So that's kind of how I got started in dendrochronology, and I've honestly never done anything else. So oh, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, we have all kinds of stories of how people, uh, the pathways into their careers. And so that's an interesting one. Uh, so I guess we can sort of, um, you know, attribute Tanzania and the allure of Tanzania in some, some ways. Yeah. I want to pull back out before we really dive into dendrochronology and what you do and tree rings and so forth, because it's my understanding, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, that you know, dendrochronology is uh, sort of an example of something that is very common in climate science or in what we call paleoclimatology, which is the use of proxy information. Yes. Uh, so I'm a professor at the University of Georgia, and there's a colleague in my department, um, uh, Dave Perinchu, that does work using lake sediment cores. And some people may be familiar with ice cores. Give our listeners just a 101 on the, the use of proxy data uh, for climate studies. And is it reliable? Yeah, gladly. Um, so if we want to study natural climate variability, like if we want to study how to um, climate changes in a natural way, we have to go further back in time than what when we started measuring the climate with instruments, because we started reliably measuring temperature and precipitation and, and the climate in general on a global scale, <clears throat> definitely no earlier than the start of the 20th century. In most cases, a little later, but, but we, we don't have reliable uh, climate data from instruments prior to the year 1900. So what that means is that the period that we started measuring the climate from the 20th century onwards is the same time that we started messing with the climate, right? That's when we started uh, emitting so much CO2 into the atmosphere. So using instrumental data alone, we don't really have a good record of what natural climate looks like. So we need to go further back in time uh, to do that. And to do that, we use, as you mentioned, proxies, which are uh, mostly biological or geological um, archives that record some aspect of the climate over time. And so you can use ice cores, as you mentioned, in, in the... Uh, the amount of, of snow and ice that's formed every year uh, is a function of, of what the climate was like that year. Um, ice cores from Greenland, Antarctica, and so forth, and the Arctic. Um, and one of the most... Uh, well, I'm a little biased here because I'm a dendrochronologist, but tree rings give a, are a really good proxy to study the climate of the past. There's limitations, obviously. We can only go back maybe 2,000 years with tree rings, but we do have a data point each and every year, uh, which is really important. And trees grow in very many places, so we have a really good spatial coverage of what climate is like in various uh, regions in the world. Yeah, and, I, and that's why I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I you know, I, I've 
talked with some dendrochronology folks up at the University of Tennessee. Uh, my home department at the University of Georgia is actually a geography department, though I'm a meteorologist, atmospheric scientist. So I so we have some folks that think about some of these issues. And I, I wanted to kind of bring forth this notion that there is sort of a range of how far different proxy data sets can go back. I know people use ice cores, corals, um, lake sediment, all kinds of things, and they all have different records. Uh, I'm sure you as a climate scientist like me also often get from people, but the climate changes naturally. How do we know that this is different than the natural variability that we've seen? And I always look at them oddly and say, I'm an atmospheric scientist. I know the climate changes naturally, but it's yeah. changing differently now and at a different rate. And I think your work in, uh, it helps inform this, as you just noted. So I want to dive in. Um, you kind of alluded to some of this, but what kind of climate data can we get from tree rings? Uh, very many. Um, so trees form a ring every year, not all trees, but the trees that we use and how much uh, a tree grows in a certain year. So how wide its ring is in a certain year is to a large extent a function of the climate under which it grows. Now, if we as uh, dendroclimatologists, so dendrochronologists who study the climate, um, if we want to look at temperature in the past, we go to regions where the trees are most influenced by, by cold and temperatures. For instance, in, in uh, northern regions, in the northern hemisphere, cold regions basically. So either at high elevation or high latitude. On the other hand, if we want to look at uh, drought patterns and precipitation in the past, we go to, to dry regions. So where I live in Tucson, uh, you know, the trees are really reliable recorders of when it what years it was dry and what years it was wet. So, so those are the two main aspects that we can look at: temperature and and drought. Uh, using tree rings, but from there we we can go out, uh, in a lot of directions. So, um, uh, some work that I've been involved in recently is linking because we have such a nice spatial coverage with tree rings. We can look, we can link temperature uh, variability from various places on the Earth with each other and look at patterns such as what the jet stream has done in the past or what El Nino uh, Southern Oscillation has done in the past. Other things we can look at are uh, storms, for instance, hurricanes, floods, uh, really important. Uh, I want to stop you right there. I want to kind of just interrupt a little bit I, I, because I was going to ask you about that. So these episodic, more episodic type changes in our climate system, like a, a strong hurricane or a series of them that may move through. How do you tease that out of a tree ring? Yeah, that's a good, uh, very good question. And and it's, it's, it's a little different from, uh, let's say, a temperature or a precipitation reconstruction, which you know, you measure the width of the ring in every year and you get a continuous record of how wet every year was or how hot every year was. When you look at more uh, climate extremes or, or events like storms or, or fires, for instance, is a really good example as well, or floods, you don't get a record of it every year, but you do get the years when a flood happened or when a storm happened. And there are different uh, mechanisms that, so, so for floods, uh, some trees form what we call flood rings, meaning that when their stems are flooded, 
trees growing by, let's say, the, the side of the Mississippi, and the Mississippi floods, and the stems of the trees are flooded. They're underwater. They're not getting enough, enough oxygen, and they actually form a different kind of ring. You can actually see that. The, the anatomy of the wood is different in those years. Um, in terms of storms <coughs> and hurricanes, uh, there it's a different mechanism that's happening. We, for instance, use strings from uh, the Florida Keys to study hurricane activity. And there, when a hurricane hits the Keys, you know, the, the Keys are very low lying, right? Um, low elevation. When a hurricane hits, you also get like a, a, a storm surge. And so you get salt water intrusion, which impacts the trees. And so in the, in the year of a hurricane and a few years following the hurricane, there's saltwater intrusion, the trees lose branches and they lose needles. So they can't photosynthesize as well. And they actually grow uh, much less than in other years. But it's, um, they're, they're only certain years, that's not happening every year. And what's really important with all of this research and that's, and that's the advantage of tree rings is that we calibrate our tree ring records against the instrumental period because we have a data point each and every year, we can check over the 20th century, you know, our tree rings tell us that there was a hurricane in 1956. Was there actually a hurricane in 1956? So that's, that's an important part of, of the research that we do. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Valerie True from the University of Arizona. And we're talking about tree rings, talking about a fundamental, let me just sort of get up on a sort of soapbox here for a second. We're talking about a fundamental aspect of climate science here because there, are, let's keep it real, there are people that are, have expressed skepticism about climate and climate change and climate scientists. And they ask questions that paleoclimatologists, dendroclimatologists, dendrochronologists and so forth are answering. It, it, it's always a little bit odd that people ask those types of questions because there's some really smart people like Valerie that do what they do and have thought about many of the questions that often get asked about, well, how do we know how things are compared to the past? I mean, for example, some of these ice core records I've seen go back hundreds of thousands of years. Um, as you just heard, sort of uh, Valerie and her work on tree rings can really look at a, a, a period that, you know, a couple thousands of years, which is very important for understanding sort of, you know, recent climate change just relatively speaking and so forth. So the question I want to start with in this next seg segment is just, just how far, what's the oldest tree that you've actually analyzed? <laughs> I love talking about that. Uh, so the oldest tree I've sampled myself is probably around a thousand years old. Uh, in a couple of locations, one was in, in the Sierra Nevada in California, an incense cedar. Um, and then um, more recently, we went to Greece, uh, um, up high in the mountains in Greece, where there's some Bosnian pine growing. And we actually found the oldest living tree in Europe, which was hmm. 1,075 years old at the wow. time. So that's pretty old for Europe, especially if you think of Greece, like it's a it's a country with a very old, you know, society where people have been deforesting for a very long time. And to find the oldest tree in Europe there was impressive. But that pales in comparison to the age of the trees uh, in North America, honestly, or in the Americas in general. So the oldest living tree 
I did not core it. Um, but the oldest living single tree and also the oldest living species are the bristlecone pines that grow uh, in the White Mountains on the uh, border between California and Nevada. And they grow up to 5,000 years. Wow. Uh, so these are trees that actually were alive when the pyramids were being built in Egypt. Oh, and they're still alive now. Wow. And what's really cool as a dendrochronologist, I mean, that per se, of course, is really cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. But with dendrochronology, we're not limited to living trees alone for studying tree rings. We can look and we can use really any piece of wood as long as it has enough rings in it. So we can use wood from dead trees, from historical buildings, from archeological material, from trees that fell into lakes thousands of years ago, trees that fell into rivers thousands of years ago. And so for instance, those bristlecone pines, you know, the trees themselves are up to 5,000 years old, but the environment that they grow in, it's, it's very high elevation and it's also very dry. So that means that when a tree dies, the wood is preserved really well because there's not really much um, that deteriorates the wood. So when you go to that site where these old tree trees grow, you can find wood that's still from like trees that died literally thousands of years ago. And their wood is still lying around on the landscape. So we can, you know, sample not only the living trees, but also the dead wood that's, that's there and bring that chronology further back in time than 5,000 years. And now you in your in your your discussion there, you mentioned the term that I want to make sure I understand as a scientist and then also as our listeners, because you you said core, you core the tree. Yes. And so, I, you know, when I'm envisioning and even when I've seen tree rings or sort of I, I envision, I guess, thinking mostly of dead trees that have kind of been, I guess, cut or sliced. And so you can reveal the ring. But to me, coring brings to mind something different. So you can you um, explain what you mean by coring and, 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 and how that differs perhaps and other techniques you use? Yeah, definitely. And, and, and thank you for asking that question, because it's, it's really important. For people to know that we don't cut down living trees to do our science. I mean, it it'd be quick, we'd be done quickly if we had to cut down every tree in order to count its rings. So what we do, our typical instrument is a core, uh, which is a hollow core that we core by hand into the tree. So it's just a metal core that's about a quarter of an inch in diameter, so about like, yeah, a quarter of an inch in diameter that you core into the tree by hand. You typically take two cores uh, from, from every tree and it doesn't damage the tree. It doesn't hurt the tree. It's a bit like uh, drawing blood of a person. You, 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 yeah, you take a small part out of its stem uh, and it doesn't do much harm, but that small part. So what you extract out of the, the, the core that you extract, is kind of a pencil sized core that has all the rings in it that you need. Um, so that's what we do for living trees. As you mentioned, once if we sample uh, dead wood from trees that have died already, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're dead already. So then we we mostly take our chainsaw and, and take a cookie out of it, as, as we call it. 
Would you would you consider the discovery that you talked about in Greece as your most significant discovery, or is there something else that you want to make us aware of that you feel most uh, sort of proud of or interested in? Ooh, uh, good question. I think our most um, important discovery, I want to mention two. One, I mentioned the, the jet stream work that we're working on now. I think that's really, so what we are trying to do in my lab is really use our expertise in in, with, in dendroclimatology and in, in tree rings to answer the most urgent and pressing climate change and climate science questions. And so one of those big questions in the climate science community at the moment is what is happening to the jet stream? What is happening to it? And is this related to anthropogenic climate change? And so as with, with many other issues, we don't really have a long record of what's happening with the jet stream. The jet stream, um, as you well, you, you certainly know, Marshall, but uh, for the listeners, those are the winds that blow uh, high, high above the Earth's surface. So at around um, uh, 10 kilometers or six miles above the Earth's surface, and they really uh, uh, orchestrate the climate uh, or the weather underneath uh, the, the jet stream at the Earth's surface. And so we found a way to use tree rings at the Earth's surface to reconstruct the jet stream that is happening 10, 10 kilometers above the surface. So just being able to do that, uh, I think was 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 quite revealing. And so we found that there, the the average position we looked at the jet stream over the North Atlantic uh, basin. The average position of the jet stream hasn't really changed much so far. We've reconstructed over three hundred years; hasn't changed much. But there's many more extremes in that position of the jet stream since about the 1960s. And those extremes in the jet stream create climate extremes and weather extremes. So, so um, whereas we, we can't say that, you know, this is caused by anthropogenic climate change, we can say that what we're seeing now in terms of the jet stream is um, extraordinary in the context of the last 300 years. That, that, that's really fascinating. I'm talking, by the way, with Dr. Valerie Truet from the University of Arizona. That's really fascinating because several years ago, a colleague of mine, and you may know her as well, Dr. Jennifer Francis at Rutgers came out with this idea of Arctic amplification and its impact on the jet streams and its ampl- impact on the amplitude of the extremities in the, in the jet stream pattern, which would lead to more extreme heat waves and drought and on the sort of trophy side or the low pressure side of that more stormy conditions. It was quite controversial at first. Some thought it was controversial. I, I, I've seen more scientific literature suggesting that she was certainly on to something. And it sounds like your results actually, you know, I, I'm, again, it's still a work in progress, but it sounds like you sort of confirm what she's seen to some degree. Yeah, we can we confirm that there's more extremes in the jet stream now. We, we can't talk about, with our research, we can't talk about what is causing those extremes, but the fact that it's happening at the same time when, you know, there's all kinds of other changes to our climate and the fact that it's unusual in the, in the context of the last 300 years um, suggests that they're, they're related. Um, that, that work we're now like actually going back to those old trees we found in Greece. Uh, we're now pushing back uh, that 300 year reconstruction of the jet stream 
uh, over the last millennium. So pushing it back to more than a thousand years, which will allow us to not just look at the more recent past, but also look at periods like the medieval climate anomaly and the little ice age. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from University of Georgia. I'm talking with Dr. Valerie Truet about some interesting things that you, you can do with tree rings and other proxy data sets and so forth. And that last discussion was a really interesting geek out, as we like to say on the show, because we, you know, she made the connection between, you know, what's happening in uh, the climate of the past using, she's a detective using a tree and linking that to something that's very important to our weather, the jet stream. The jet stream literally is a, a principal driver and so where that jet stream is located can uh, determine quite a bit of things about our contemporary weather. And so that's, that was really fascinating. Are there any other trends that you've seen other than changes in the jet stream from your work that you want to share with us? You know, I'd, li I'd, I'd like to share, Marshall, that when you're when we're talking about global warming, right, about temperatures rising uh, everywhere uh, around the Earth, that's something that you definitely see in the tree rings. It, it doesn't matter where your tree rings come from, um, your temperature, you know, from cold climates, you see that increase in temperature in the most recent century everywhere. Everywhere where you measure uh, tree, uh, temperature with tree rings, you'll see that the 20th century and now the 21st century is extraordinary. And I want to mention there that um, that itself is extraordinary. The fact that the climate or the temperature rise, the recent temperature rise, you see it everywhere. That's what makes it different from, for instance, previous warm periods. So I just mentioned the medieval climate anomaly, which in the past was called the medieval warm period. And in, indeed, in Europe, that was, so we're talking about years 800 to 1400, more or less. That was a warm period in Europe. Um, but it wasn't warm everywhere. You look at other regions around the world, that, that's why we no longer call it the medieval warm period, because it wasn't warm everywhere. We call it the medieval climate anomaly. It was strange, a strange climate everywhere. But for instance, in the American Southwest, it was dry, not warm. Um, in, in Asia, it did something different as well. So, so, so the uniformity of the current warming is extraordinary compared to the past. The fact that it is everywhere. Um, yeah, and that, and that certainly is just one more piece of evidence, this sort of consilience, if you will, that that, that something's happening on a large scale. And uh, clearly, um, at least from my perspective and the scientific literature's perspective, anthropogenic-related uh, uh, CO2 and other changes are, are driving that. I want to mention your book. You published a book called Tree Story, A History of the World Written in Rings. What inspired you to write the book? <laughs> You know, I uh, thanks for asking that, uh, Marshall. I was uh, in 2017. I was lucky enough to get a sabbatical uh, from uh, the University of Arizona, and I got a year-long sabbatical, or I took a year-long sabbatical. I was I I'd just gotten tenure, and I was really, I mean, you you know what it's like. I was really tired, so I was ready for a sabbatical, and. Um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do in my sabbatical. Um, so was, I, I knew I wanted to not just, you know, a, a sabbatical is you get a year off of teaching, 
but I didn't want just want to continue the treadmill of publishing papers and writing proposal and doing everything else. I really wanted to to take the time to figure out what it was that I wanted to do in the next six years of my career. And again, serendipity happened because three months into my sabbatical, I got an email from um, an editor at Johns Hopkins University Press asking me, hey, are you interested in writing a broad audience book about your science, about dendrochronology? And I'll be honest, my my first reaction was like, "Ah, surely that exists. I mean, it's such a accessible science endocrinology, right? Surely someone's written a book about that already. And I started thinking about it and realized, no, I don't think anyone has. And 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 if someone had, I would know it. So so then I took on a challenge. I figured if, if an editor at a renowned uh, press is interested in the topic, um, uh, let's go ahead and do it. If not now, you know, the sabbatical was, was a great timing for it. No, I will mention I started writing the book in a sabbatical. It took a lot longer. No, than... I was going to say, I bet you didn't finish it in seven months <laughs> or eight or nine months. <laughs> no, so I enjoyed I enjoyed writing the book a lot while I was on sabbatical. And once I got back to normal life and I had to write a book in a, uh, as an aside to everything else that, that, that we do, it got a little harder. But but I, I got it done. I'm really happy. Um, I actually really enjoyed doing it. And the feedback yeah. was very positive. So. As someone, I, you know, I had a book contract. I do work in urban climate. It's one of the areas I work in, actually. And I had a book contract. And I realized this is going to be a lot of work. And so I actually ended up not writing that book and ended up going in a different direction with some of the things I published in that regard. So uh, I, kudos to you. I've, I've written some other books uh, in some other topical areas, but not nearly the undertaking for a book in our scholarly areas because yeah. that would be quite challenging. Yeah. What, do, what, do you, what do you, I mean, I'm, I'm, you're, you're working like, one of our producers wrote this question and I want to read it verbatim. Um, she said, being a professor, you get to teach and inspire new generations. How does it feel to know others want to follow in your footsteps? That is honestly, that is what a lot of what keeps me going. You know, you, you, you know, as well as me that being a climate scientist at times can be um, frustrating, but also uh, depressing. I mean, it, it can be, there's no, there's, there's very little good news. Uh, everything that you hear about the climate, it's, you know, and, or that you learn about the climate, it's, it's often uh, bad news. So, so really inspiring the next generation of scientists, whether it's climate scientists or other scientists, just knowing that, that the work that you do is not just finding facts about the climate, but is also encouraging um younger people either to study the climate or to more importantly to care about the climate and about our planet that is a a large part of what keeps keeps me going and in writing this book that's been a a really nice uh side effect something that i never imagined is that the, the amount of emails that i get from people saying how they really appreciate it uh, the stories that I tell, how they really, you know, they most readers are not scientists, so they really enjoyed reading about the science, uh, you know, learning 
Uh, people would tell me, oh, I wish I'd known about this earlier. I would have become a dendrochronologist, you know. <laughs> young people I, I interviewed, uh, I was interviewed by, by two young uh, women uh, who were still in college uh, for a podcast. And one of them said, I'm going to I'm going to do my bachelor's thesis on dendroclimatology now. Like this is this is great. I want to do this. So that's it's it's really inspiring uh, in in both directions. Them being inspired by the work I do inspires me to continue doing it. And and I resonate exactly with what you just said. Now, where can people find more information about you or your research? Do you have a website or are you on social media anywhere? Yeah, I am on Twitter. Um what, my What's that? I said, what's your Twitter handle? It's epispheric. Epispheric. Atmospheric. That's where it comes from. Epispheric. Okay. Epispheric, a play on atmospheric. Yes, exactly. Yes. We'll we'll, we'll make sure our our listeners follow you and I'll I'll give you a follow as well. And then I, yeah, I have a website. Uh, It's ValerieTrue.com. So my first name, last name.com. Very good. Well, I think we have to end it there. But before we do, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Gerardo Romero. Gerardo is a recent college graduate and is fascinated by all weather, especially snow. His most memorable weather event was Hurricane Ivan in 2004. Gerardo knows the importance of weather warnings and wants to be able to warn people when inclement weather is headed their way. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Valerie, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah, I, I did as well and learned quite a bit, and I hope you did too. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time.